Are you looking to become a tier one operator in the gaming world? Elevate your games with Black Sight Studio Terrain. Folks, I hope you stuck with us through our technical issue. I'm not sure what happened. Um, yeah, that was, uh, I don't know what happened there. I uh, apologize for that. The OBS studio totally crashed on us, and we are back. And let me uh, start the question over I was given to you, Jim, before the failure there. Um, whether it's a game you've already created or a game in your library, what do you have within your collection that you consider the perfect war game? It may not be like the absolute perfect, but in your category or your library of games, what do you consider your perfect war game right now? Uh, well, um, honestly, like, like you perhaps alluded to a second ago, uh, there is no uh, perfect war game. Um, but one thing that I've sort of found is that... Um, Okay, uh, let me let me think of how to how to frame this question somewhat succinctly. Okay, uh, war games are like tools in your in, in your war chest. You know, you have to have you know multiple tools for different jobs or whatever. Right. And there are some games that are going to work for certain things and and not others. So the idea of like a perfect war game in a general sense might not be great. However, um, you can have a game that is very very uh, either malleable or uh, very adaptable that uh, you can do uh, multiple things with. They can have a really good, you know, general core system that can be applied to a bunch of different, uh, to, to a bunch of different uh, things or whatever. Yeah. On top of that, you know, if you can have a bunch of other, uh, I mean, like obviously my first answer would traditionally be um, Panzer Blitz, Panzer Leader, Arab Israeli Wars. But I can't really say that because those games out of the box need a lot of love. Uh -huh. they were, those are some of the first games of their type way back in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, as such, you know, the, the Model T's of gaming, or at least that kind of gaming, um, you know, commercially available, you buy one box for $10 in those days, and you are set for life with Panzer Leader or Panzer Blitz or whatever, you know. Um, there's a lot of problems in those games. Uh, so I can't really go with those. But a game like that, if I had to have a perfect game, uh, at least for our community, the closest that might come to perfect would be um, Valorant Victory. Yeah. Um, number one, it's free. Number two, it is lower level on the command scale. You play with squads and fire teams, which is closer to a lot of the other games that people – uh, either on sitrep or on tabletop or you know other communities you know tend to play it's not that big of a leap from people who play like flames of war or bolt action or chain of command or uh, battle group or things like that to make the jump into a, uh, a, a more of a hex encounter kind of a game uh, it's easy it's free uh, the rules are quick adaptable um, it was originally published for world war ii since then i've done it for world war one Korea, not, I'm sorry, not Korea, World War One, Vietnam, uh, the Falklands, and uh, Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And people have done it for everything up to and including Mars attacks. Um, it's that, you know, infinitely, uh, it's not infinitely scalable, but it's infinitely, 
maybe not infinitely, but it's very, very um, adaptable. It's very uh, user-friendly. And it was made to, because it's a user-made game. I mean, a guy, you know, Barry Doyle liked Advanced Squad Leader back in the day, back in the 80s, realized nobody wanted to play Advanced Squad Leader that much anymore because it's too big, too complicated. Uh, it's a big 1980s kind of a game. So he says, okay, I want to put the game system on a diet. I'm going to bring back everything that was great about Advanced Squad Leader, but in a way that, you know, a modern gaming audience can digest it, pick it up, run with it, and then make their own things for it. Yeah. There's a huge community for it. You know, you go over to Board Game Geek, there are people who make maps for it, you know, now. I think the game was originally published, I think, in 2007. And, you know, 12 years later, people are still crushing out maps for it, publishing it. People are trading maps. Hey, check out this scenario I designed or whatever. Uh, you know, people have Gurkhas now. People have, you know, Japanese special naval landing troops. People have Martians. <laughs> um, one of these days I want to do, uh, I know I keep threatening this, I want to do Star Wars in Valorant Victory. I want to do, you know, some of the big battles we see in, you know, 4 through 6. That uh, would some be cool. Original ground, some of the original ground battles. Yeah. Um, just, I will not make Ewok counters. That's just off the oh, table. Oh, come on. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Uh, I will make a Chewy counter. Though. Chewy will be like a, like like a plus three hero, but um, you know it's, it, it will be easy to do. Yeah. Um. So yeah, just because of and the other thing I want to do that has kind of been kicked around before, and one of these days I'm gonna you know I have a weekend nothing going on. Yeah, right. I have a weekend nothing going on. Back in the day, 2017. I know that's not really too far back, but you know a couple years ago, mm -hmm. Warren was very very over on our tabletop. Warren was very serious about doing something with San Nazaire. And I'm like, I've got the game for it. We can do this in Valorant Victory. It would be a big map. It would be a big game, but we could totally do San Nazaire, Operation Chariot, the, you know, the raid on that whole dry dock situation. Yep. We could totally do that in Valorant Victory. It would be about a hundred pieces on the table. It wouldn't be a big deal. Um, and you could do it in the right scale, the right scope. A hex in that game is usually about 20 meters. So a 2,000 long, a 2,000 foot long dry dock, you know, big enough to hold, you know, KMS turpets would fit on that map with no problem at all. Uh, we'd have to come up with something for the ships because there was a little bit of naval activity going on before that. Sure. But um, the, the point of the story is that system can be used for a almost limitless, anything post black powder, you could use that system for. And it's scalable. It's the right scale to maybe bring in people from other parts of wargaming, and it's very cheap. It's very accessible. It's probably the closest thing I have to a uh, to a perfect wargame, and it has because it's relatively simple. It has elbow room in the rule system for when you want to make up new rules. The game we played most recently was Royal. Uh, Paris, sorry, it was, yeah, 3rd Paris versus uh, 7th Regiment of Argentinian, um, Argentinian Infantry in the Falkland Islands, one of the mountains uh, that were there, uh, June, I think, 14th, uh, 1982. The problem there is that those were all night battles. And so we had to make up rules for flares, we had to make up rules for night fighting, and rules for spotting, you know, rules for darkness, to have a battle in pitch darkness. All the land battles in the Falklands were, took place at night. Um, the point to your question is the rule system is light enough to where it's got elbow room, it's got head room left in under the hood, so to speak, so you can add stuff to it and not completely break the game or whatever. Yeah. So if you want to make up special rules for, oh, okay, we're going to do the uh, 
uh, which we call uh, we're going to do San Nazaire. Okay, we need rules for how the ships work and the motor torpedo boats and the German anti-aircraft guns. Okay, well, those rules aren't in Valor and Victory, but the game is simple enough where you can do that. Uh, because the game is simple to begin with in its DNA, your special rules can be simple. And there's room in the system so your special rules don't break it. Uh-huh. Whereas if you try to do it in a very complicated game like, say, Panzer Leader, you're going to wind up with a game that is, number one, in order for your rules to be at the same resolution as the rest of the game, your special rules have to be complicated. And you're adding complicated special rules onto a system that's already complicated, and it blows up. I've had Panzer Leader games do that. It's, it's, it doesn't work. So Panzer Leader is definitely my favorite game. I think everyone knows that, but I would not call it perfect. Um, the closest thing to a perfect game I think I have on my shelf would be something akin to Valor and Victory. There are games I like more. Uh, the Battle Group to go with miniatures. Uh-huh. Um, Steel Panthers to go with computers. Uh, Dark Star to go with sci-fi. But those games, I think, have a certain niche or certain flaws that say, look, this is my favorite game, but it's not a perfect game. Sure. Gotcha. Interesting. So from my point of view, um, perfect game in my library. If I was talking miniatures, and this is going to get me kicked out of the modern community, um, for our great mass battles, let's just let's tone it to mass battles. Is Games Workshop's Lord of the Rings. Okay. Um, it's a very solid... Uh, rule set, um, and you know it does scale somewhat, but from a miniature standpoint, fantasy definitely. Um, if you're going down to squads and teams, you know then obviously Spectre Operations comes into play, um, and then Skirmishangan when you're getting into platoon company level, uh, I think are those. But my perfect game. And you've already kind of discussed it, and I agree, disagree with you on some. I think Advanced Squad Leader is probably the, and it's different reason for me as why I consider it the perfect game, because to me, there is so much to that game. You spend more time, honestly, I think, setting it up getting the scenario, you know, there's weather you can be involved, there's all these aspects. There's this whole culture and community around Advanced Squad Leader, even to this day. And for a game to stand the test of time since what was first edition? 70... Oh, yeah, late 70s. Yeah. So, you know, to still be going today by, was it Multi-Man Publishing owns the rights of it now? Um, oh, they do. They also they, they do own the like technically the Panzer Leader, but they call um, it MBT or something like that, right? Is that what it's called now? No, they, they, it's called uh, or Panzer. No, it's it's Panzer Leader Hell of Death. Oh, okay. Um, which frankly, it's not recommended. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe it's just me being a Panzer Leader because I've grew up with a regular kind of Panzer Leader for so long that yeah. any changes kind of like strike me the wrong way. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, other companies like Toshash Miniatures do publish um, parts of Panzer Leader 
I don't know if they have like some sort of arrangement worked out with uh, with Multiman or Multiman doesn't know. I don't hope I'm not getting anybody in trouble here. But um, and those that Toshas miniatures are the people who came out with Panzer Leader or technically Panzer Blitz for the uh, that we've done on the uh, stream with uh, what you call it um, 1991 Desert Leader. Oh, okay. The, uh, the uh, Gulf War. Uh huh. Um, so I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, but, no, no, yeah, no. Yeah, the, the same, the, the same company I think owns both games. Okay. Like. I, I know. Did they take games. over the catalog of Avalon Hill Games? Is, or did they just pick and choose? Do you know? No, because Avalon Hill is still a company. Avalon Hill. Is, oh come on! It really is not. Well, it's a it's a division of Hasbro, Disney's right? Post, eventually, yeah. Yeah. It's a part of a part of a part of a part of. But a they don't print energy. real war games anymore. It's what House on the Hill. And Axis and Allies. I was just going to say, they still make Axis and Allies. Yeah, I mean... They, they make Axis and Allies. For a while, Axis and Allies was a miniatures game. Yeah. It was a hex, 15 millimeter. That's how I got into miniature gaming. That's how I got into Beasts of War. Was That's the reason there is an Oriskany. Is, <laughs> um, no, seriously, Avalon Hills, Axis and Allies, 15 millimeter miniatures. It was this weird miniatures hex, kind of a hybrid game. It was like, oh, you want to play with miniatures and you like hex encounter games? Here's something that has a little bit. Of, it was super easy. You take it to the club, you set it up. People see it's three dimensional. They see little toy tanks, and uh, you play games with people, and that's how you get people interested in the more advanced games, you know, down the road. Yeah, it was kind of like the, you know, the gateway drug. The first one's free. Come on it, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, kind of a dark. You analogy, game pusher. That's right. I'm <laughs> But that's, that's effectively what I used it for. It, it looks like a miniature game. It plays like a hex encounter game, and, and that's how you got. That's how it, what used to recruit people. Yeah. And you know, looking around for 15 millimeter miniatures for World War II on the web, that's how I ran across Piece of War, and uh, yeah, the rest is history. But um, they no longer make that. They had War at Sea. They they, they finally shook him that. And uh, yeah, they still make the Axis and Allies the board game. That is probably more famous than the hex and hex and miniatures game, but uh, the board game, and then they're always making like new versions of it. Like there's a, a Axis and Allies for Normandy. There's an Axis yeah. and Allies for World War One. There's an Axis, you know, it's basically the same game with a new board. Mm-hmm. But they, they do still produce stuff. I just, you know, they're definitely not uh, nearly as big as they used to be. That's for sure. The big hex encounter companies nowadays are um, Decision Games. Still makes a lot of stuff. Uh, they're always publishing in the strategy and tactics magazines. Uh, Matrix Games, I think, still makes some stuff. Yep. There's still yep. there, there's still some big companies out there making old school hex encounter games. Historicon was awash with that stuff. Hey, um, the strategy and tactics, the company, just, they they make their own stuff in house. Do they? And um, yeah, I got a couple of Vietnam games. I got a Poland game. I still need to play. Um, they're at uh, Historicon, you know, for you know ongoing projects. Um, yeah, they're still around. Uh, I just don't think they're you know, obviously not nearly as big as they used to be. Yeah. In the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, Avalon Hill was it. Yeah. People, people yeah, talk realize. about Games Workshop used to used to dominate the market. I started playing war games in 1985. Between 1992 and 93, I was part owner of a gaming store. It was 1997 before I heard of 40K and before we heard of, uh, of GW. <laughs> and, and seriously. It's just not that it was never that big a deal over here on the side of the water. Right. But what was was Battletech and Avalon Hill. Yeah. So Faza and Battletech, Faza and uh, Avalon Hill, also Victory Games, uh, SSI, SPI, you know, all those other companies. 
Yeah, there was um, what was the miniatures? Uh, the fantasy miniature was it Reaper Miniatures back? That what was that company? They used to make a lot, like make, make a lot of D and D miniatures. Yeah, Ralph, yeah. Ralph Partha. Yes, Ralph Partha. Yeah, yeah. Back in the glory days of uh, early, but yeah, I mean, I started. I think my very first exposure to a war game, Avalon Hill, was Panzer Leader, Panzer Blitz. You know, and then it went from there to. And now I don't know if I've said it. I know I said it to you, Jim, but I don't know if I said it publicly. But I'm on a quest to collect every Avalon Hill title. So that's yeah. Buy a new house. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I just got Gettysburg, or no, I got the Bull Run in. Just got that in, and okay. Firepower just came in, and um, Gunfighter or Gunslinger came in, and I. If you ever go to Historicon, you know, do the casino trick. Yeah. You know, leave your wallet in the car. Because we went down to, um, what was it, uh, Bob's Basement, whatever they called it. And it was uh-huh. just all this old Avalon Hill stuff. Some of it's still in the plastic. Awesome. It was all piled up. People were just cleaning out their garages, you know, here to take this stuff. Excellent. And, uh, you know, some of it's, even the stuff that had been opened was in really good shape, but some of it was still in the plastic. That would be incredible. You know, and I, it just, I, because I think I need to replace either my Panzer later Panzer Blitz game, because when I got it, it wasn't complete. So I need to replace one of the two. So I, I you know, I've been thinking a lot, speaking of Historicon, um, because I've been painting up the exclusive mini. Um, I was going to do that tonight on, but I figured uh, we do the live broadcast, which mm-hmm. I, reminds me of something else I got to talk about. But for regarding Historicon, I definitely think next year, SitRep needs to podcast from Historicon, um, you know, the full four days or whatever, we can do the show from there and get some stuff going. Because um, I, I would love to get, you know, some games in and just talk to people. And, you know, I, I was super jealous watching you do your thing there. <laughs> I, I can be honest with you and tell you it sucks sitting on this side of the, of the computer screen at a no. convention. That, that, that's been me a hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not used to, I mean, after Historicon and then us, you know, skipping out on Gen Con this year, I'm like, oh, I've got the itch to get back and to work. So, um, yeah, I think we're going to have to definitely look into doing uh, Historicon next year. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, speaking of live shows, and this is kind of hurts me a little bit, to be honest with you. Uh, on Facebook, we had a poll going on whether you preferred a recorded show or a live show. Now, granted, okay. we didn't get a lot of uh, responses, so our N is a little low. But right. everybody, everybody who voted, voted for a recorded show. Really? Yeah. I was surprised. On a live show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, you spoke. We listened. So we will go back to a recorded format for the podcast. Um, I think it, in a lot of ways it's probably the smart move because we can tend to get more people on, um, you know, yeah. on that. But that's okay. Um, you know, we'll continue to do hobby night on Thursday nights. I'm rearrange my work schedule for my second job so I can make sure I get in and, you know, take uh, some shows. And then, um, you know, Jim, when you want to do a show, you know, we can kick back and forth. And Chris is getting his home studio set up in his new house. So uh, hopefully he'll be able to start doing some stuff too. Um, So that's all going on. 
So let's get back to the perfect game. So we've okay. talked about what we have or, you know, played. If you were to create the perfect game, what in your mind would be the perfect game? What kind of game, you know, is it Hex Encounter? Is it miniature based? Is it a combination thereof? You know, what to you would be the perfect game? What would be the setting or theater or, or genre? Um, you know, and just go from there and just kind of spitball and kind of give us your if if I gave you an unlimited budget and said you don't have to work at your job anymore to create the perfect game, what would it be? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I design games like, you know, people have different kinds of hobbies. Some people like to play games. Some people like to go to conventions, like to paint miniatures. A big part of my hobby is designing games. I've just, des- you know, I've designed 50 games. Well, not 50. I've designed 30 games in my uh-huh. life. Um, you only hear about three or four of them because only three or four of them are any good. I, I never said I was a good designer. Um, <laughs> yeah, but think but- about all the good designers, how many games they've designed and what didn't make it, you know, it's like anything yeah. else. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's kind of a hypothetical scenario. So again, what I've learned is, um, you know, in, you know, building all this stuff is okay. What's my audience. Now this might not apply to your exact question, but like, uh-huh. okay. Um, I've got four or five people, you know, here at my dining room table or whatever, you know, we're going to game every, you know, every week or something we're going to game on Saturdays or now that we're on, you know, now, now that we're on the internet and now that we're on the web, you know, we got guys in, you know, I got like my own little crew on the web and uh, okay. What do you guys want? You know, do you guys want to do this? Do you guys want to do that? And then, okay, sit down and design the game for that specific purpose with some sort of um, scalability and this might sound a little strange coming from a war gamer, but with some kind of RPG element. Um, this is one of the things that's made Dark Star such a sticker. Is you don't just have starships and they shoot each other and they blow up and somebody wins. Uh-huh. Whether you win or lose, uh, obviously if you win you get more, but if you lose you still get some. You get you know these little campaign points and they get you go into a bank and when you get so many you can upgrade and you, your captain gets a name and. Before you know it, he's got a little personality and this little battle group of guys that always fight together. Everyone who plays Dark Star with us on the weekends plays the same ships over and over and over again. They're building up, for lack of a better term, XP, and they're leveling up, and they're coming up with little backstories. We do the same thing with uh, the game we made up, uh, the game I made up for uh, fighter combat in World War II, Aces High. Um, it's you could do it with miniatures. It doesn't use hexes, but right now we're just using counters. Uh huh. Um, and like, you know, little, almost like little simplified battle tech sheets with little bubbles or whatever. And you get hit and you get shot down and if your pilot survives, he gets a kill or whatever, you know, and he, you know, you buy points and you level up, you can increase your skills. So, uh, as far as like the perfect war game, I have found be specific. I'll try to keep my answer a little shorter this time. No, be okay. specific, be specific toward your audience and what your intended target is. I think too many games out there are trying to do too much. Uh, this is especially brutal with black powder era games and medieval games and ancient games. The further back in history, you get the worse it gets mm. um, because history becomes more and more blurry. It really doesn't, but people's knowledge of it generally does. Uh-huh. And so you, and so you get games like, Oh, you know, it's, it's ancients. 
you can do everything from, um, you know, Charlemagne back to, uh, you know, Alexander the Great. I'm like, no, you can't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> war, that, that's 1,200 years of history, and war does change. Just because you don't know about it doesn't mean that, you know. So I think some games are a little too generic. I like specific games that try and do a certain thing. Balanced against some kind of scalability. So if you want, like we were saying before with uh, Valor and Victory, scalability and adaptability. Um, I know your audience so that your game, you know, um, when when you're designing your game, people actually want to play it. Yeah. You know, and uh, again, probably the the weirdest thing is working some kind of weird RPG slash campaign mechanic in there so that people will start to tell like a narrative story with your game. It also helps you bring in the RPG crowd, which is, you know, obviously a big resource. So it's almost like an RPG war game hybrid. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Like you know, the perfect kind of a game, especially with the really small scale games like Skirmish, which you know, Sangin, which you know, obviously has a big RPG like element into it. Yeah. Um, games like that. A lot of people were talking about playing with Vietnam. They want to start like a Vietnam campaign where it's like I want to get my guys through a tour of duty. Um, I was talking with some guys at Historicon, actually a uh, Signals Intelligence veteran uh, from um, Afghanistan. And he was like, I was talking about our asymmetrical victory conditions in Valorant Victory Vietnam, where you, you know, the Americans or slash free world cannot fire into civilians. And he's like, see, that's, no, I don't like that rule where you can't fire into civilians. They said, you know, if you can fire into civilians, you can, but you take a huge penalty. I was like, okay, let me back up and explain what I, you know, I, I explained that too quickly. Yes, it's prohibitive. You're going to lose the game, but more of your guys are going to live. And he was like, that's what I was talking about. You're in a firefight. There are civilians in this hooch in which there's also an RPG nest or a douche or God knows what else. And, okay, in victory points, because when you shoot at civilians, you're, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're going to lose, uh, you know, uh, victory point-wise. Right. But that douche gets silenced or that RPG is silenced. More of your guys are getting home. And, yeah, you've pretty much flushed that game victory point-wise, but now more of your guys have made it to the next game and the next game and the next game. And maybe you have one game a month for 12 months, and that's your tour. And, you know, the real victory, the campaign victory, is how many of your guys made it through the tour, Um, you know, things like that. That's a lot of work, not only for the designer, but also for the player. It's a big commitment for the players to really get that payoff. You don't just sit down and play a game. You play 10 or 12. Mm -hmm. But uh, we've even experimented with that in Panzer Leader. Uh, My friend Alex and I played Gross Deutschland Division. We picked out little battalions within a German division in Russia, and we said we're going to fight from Kursk in the middle of 43 to pretty much back right on at the end in middle of 44. We're going to play through one year of gross Deutschland's history. And we're going to see if we can survive on the German side. And uh, it wasn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> and as you would win, you would get points and then you would buy more units and upgrade your order of battle and, you know, things like that. It's a little bit of paperwork. And I know that's kind of a dirty word in wargaming. Unfortunately, I don't really agree with that, but that's where you get your narrative. So those would be the kind of things that I would try to work into a perfect game if I was designing it. Okay. Wow. Okay. Uh, how? What would be my perfect game? Um, I don't know. That's a tough question when you think about it. I, for me, it has to be one that grabs my attention and holds my attention. I fall victim to shiny syndrome a lot where, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who does really good PR makes a game look really, really great, 
and you get this game and you're all excited to play it and you start playing it and you're realizing it's not that good you know so right. I, I have shelves full of games that are like it's not that good it doesn't and it doesn't capture the sense of excitement. I'm excited when, you know, it's like Christmas morning. You get that cool toy, you play for it until you're just bored of it, and then you're looking for the next big thing. I need something that captures my attention, holds my attention. And how do you do that in modern times, you know? I, I don't know if our lives have gotten more complicated or just busier or just too many distractions. You know, everybody's competing for people's time. And I think the perfect game would be one that's flexible enough that you can easily take from one genre, one theater of conflict to the next and have a little bit of hobby in it. You know, I do like the idea of personally, my game would be 3D printed. Um, okay. Reason being, um, I just got another 3D printer. I got a resin printer, so I'm trying. I'm learning this, and I've been looking for 10 mil or 6 mil uh, files for armor and stuff. You know, to do a 6 or 10 mil game, and there's not that many out there. It's, so it's like I, but I strongly believe, and I know this has been spoken about in other shows, um, that the future of war gaming, miniature gaming, is. 3D printing. It's not going to be people making the miniatures. It's them creating the files to sell for you to print at home. So right. um, I strongly believe that's the way we're going to go. Um, I mean, there's people out there that are, will disagree with that, but I truly feel that's how it's going to end up going. Um, you know, just from my very first 3D printer, which I got four years ago now, maybe, yeah, about four years ago to the one I just received this week. The, the technology is incredible. So the changes, it, it's like VCRs, you know, the DVDs, oh you know, yeah. remember that? Uh, oh, Betamax. Yeah. Remember Betamax? Um, Vaguely. <laughs> well, um, it, if you were a porn aficionado, you knew Betamax. That's what I was talking Because uh, <laughs> all the good porn was on uh, Betamax. So, uh, whatever, I don't know that, but I, that's what, if you read any history about it, that's what they say. So, I watched a TV show that said the opposite. Really? Like, yeah. They said that um, the fact that, like, back in the early 80s, these two formats were in direct competition. Yes. And it was it was neck and neck. And part of what put VHS over the top was expanding into that market. Okay. Well, maybe I got it backwards then. But, okay. yeah. But, um, so, Perfect Game would be one that's easily accessible, one that you can grow, you can grow with, um, you know, that – I guess I'm trying to recapture kind of the feeling. I started playing D and D back in early eighties. I'm talking 80, 81 or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, first edition to second edition, a D and D. Um, and I can remember spending hours and hours creating modules, scenarios, you know, adventures. Um, yeah. I ended up being the DM a couple of times or a lot of times actually. And I remember creating characters hours upon hours, just creating characters. I, it was like I le lived and breathed this game. Yep. And um, and then I I found this game with big killer stompy robots, you know, um, and, and they had clans, you know, and stuff oh, yeah. like that, you know. Um, <laughs> 
So we played that, but I mean, D and D has always been my first love, you know. And then anything TSR put out, I was all about, you know, Indiana Jones, the role playing game, right? Which kind of stunk, to be honest with you. Um, I do have the original box still, but um, and then James Bond role playing game. So, but anyways, I do agree with you that there should be some RPG um, aspect to the game as well, because you need to get invested in in the game, you know, and what um, better yeah, way? like it's some some way that your the biggest scale we've done was battalions. The smallest scale might be a squad. That, uh-huh. that, that that right there is a big group. That's from eight guys to eight hundred guys. That that's a lot of leeway there. Yeah, but w- where your force can evolve and grow, like even if it's an individual ship in Dark Star or a squadron of planes in Aces High or whatever, you know, you get a bunch of guy or a bunch of characters together, and they go into combat and. Okay, maybe you have to make up like the war, or if you're doing historical, you just set it in historical event or whatever. Uh-huh. Just letting your players build up their characters. Okay, you have so many points, like Dark Star. I'll just use that as an example. Yep. You have so many points, you get to buy something off of a list. Here's the list, and just by selecting what you buy, you're developing your character. Yeah, or at the very least, developing your crew. Like, is your guy cautious? He's going to buy more shielding. Oh, the hell with caution. I'm like some of Jen's ships. I'm going to buy more accurate guns. If I kill the other guy first, I don't need shielding. You know, I'm going to buy more speed. You can't kill me if you can't catch me. You know, before you know it, your ship or your crew or whatever is evolving. And you almost trick the players into developing their own narrative. And if they're going into your game, if they're like a lot of ex-RPGers or current RPGers, they like narrative anyway, then it's like a, a win-win. They're like... I don't have to be tricked into looking for a narrative. I want that narrative. And he can name every single thing about his captain except the captain's name. I mean, he hasn't <laughs> the name for that guy yet. But he's, you know, he knows everything about him because he knows what stuff he's bought. He's helped design his own ships. He's, you know, like he goes in the Excel spreadsheet and we work together and we actually built the ships. So he's got his backstory and but he's not really an RPG guy, so he's like, oh, I don't really have a name for my guy yet. But tr- we know everything else about him. I can draw a picture of this guy at this point. Um, but again, that's it's just a narrative that you, uh, even if your player is not a, a big time role playing gamer, he, uh-huh. he'll he'll get he'll get pulled into it uh, that way. I think. Excellent. Well, um, I am kind of embarrassed. We've had some people checking in, and Dennis. Um, said greetings from kansas and he is sitting making plans in motion for hystericon for next year so uh dennis we definitely want to get you out there you know and get you at the table uh dennis has been a big supporter of us from the beginning absolutely yeah so we definitely need to get him you know we we need to you know how um ott because you know that's where Jim and I met was through OTT, Beast of War. It's still hard for me to say OTT. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. It, Beast of War just rolls off the tongue. But Jim and I, that's how we met. And a lot of our core group still, you know, is from there. And then obviously we've grown from that. But, uh, you know, like when we went to Salute, we did backstager meetups. And, you know, so I definitely want to do something like that, a meetup, an operator meetup. So our set rep operators. We're going to do a meetup. We'll do some good old swapping military stories. Let's get some gaming in. Um, we'll have to come up with the perfect game for that, Jim. Yeah. You know? um, uh, honestly, 
Uh, I, I think, I mean, at least for me, I think that would be valid victory. You can, yeah. I mean, for what you're, for what you're talking about yeah. and here are the reasons. Number one, you pack in the suitcase. Yeah. Number two, it's the same kind of level that most people are used to playing. Uh, it's super easy. You can learn it in, uh, 20 minutes. And, um, if everyone knows the rules, you can get through a reasonably decent sized game in like an hour or two. There you go. Perfect. Um, as much as I would love to, and I've done it, I've, I've taken Panzer leader on the road. Uh, me and Bruce Lee and Damon had a huge Panzer leader game. Uh, in the free time after the bolt action boot camp, we, I made that map with extra big counters, uh-huh. extra big match, uh, hex grid. And I put all my counters on the back of Scrabble tiles. Oh, wow. So they stack up like poker chips and they're super big and easy to handle, but you need bigger hexes for that or whatever. That was a great game. But, um, I don't know if that would be the perfect game for what you're talking about. Uh-huh. Uh, I try to be objective in, you know, when people ask me these kind of things. And so there's, there's my favorite, and then there's the best. And, uh, you know, I'm a big boy and I know that those aren't always, you know, the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So my favorite would be Panzer leader. Obviously it always will be. I'm going to yep. be buried with a box of Panzer leader in my casket. <laughs> um, well, that way we you know when I yep. get to the afterlife, I can start gaming with people. You know? Wait a minute. You don't, <laughs> you don't think the big man in the big chair doesn't have his own copy? <laughs> no, better. He's, he's supposed to be perfect. You know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know if that would be the best venue for, um, I mean, the people I played with at the, at the boot camp had some background in it, but you know, to take like to a big event like that, yeah, we could, we have to come up with some more modern versions of it. Yeah. Um, like I said, we've got Vietnam, Lebanon and Falklands for now. We could do, we could push that forward into, uh, Gulf War. I don't know if that, you know, big infantry battles are really a thing. Gulf War is more of a tank thing. Right. Well, but, everybody um, loves yeah, their tanks, you know? Yeah, but for tanks, yeah, Valorant Victory is not the best for tanks. No. How uh, long would you say it takes for an average game of Panzer Blitz, Panzer Leader? Oh, if everyone knows the rules, yep. three, at least, maybe four or five hours. So what time did you guys technically get done broadcasting and stuff this year when you were at Historicon? At Historicon? Yeah. Oh, uh, Justin took us off the clock at, like, four or five uh-huh. he would render until uh render and post until like six or seven uh-huh. and then we would walk around and you know try like just look at games or whatever i actually got into one game that was all that was the best fun i had at historic i didn't even make it on camera um until god knows when two in the morning sometimes <laughs> the hall the halls would the halls would technically shut down at midnight but then uh-huh. like uh we went down to the pub i never made it to the pub because i ran across the guys from black powder studios Oh, did you? Uh, cool. Yeah, like just right, right out in the street. We stood there on the corner and just sh- you know shot the shit for five hours until people were like handing us money on the street. They're like, you, you poor people here, have some cash. And we're like, no, we're not homeless. <laughs> we're just sitting here talking. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's um, the officially, I think it closed down around 11 or midnight. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, people were, I mean, we, we were done way before that as far as official work goes. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, timing-wise, um, you know, if we did show and then had a gaming night, you know, members, you know, anybody that wanted to participate, you know, we tried to do a big membership drive before Historicon, obviously, and get as many people, um, you know, to participate. And I thought, Valor and Victory, I love the games that you and I have played. 
you know, okay. um, that the Vietnam if game we, want, we played, if, I really we enjoyed that. Actually, if we want to actually get a table at, at Historicon, we should probably start the wheels on that now. I will reach out to the guys because um, okay. I would like SitRep to have an actual table where I don't know. I don't know the setup because I haven't been there yet. And I know. Yeah. You, I don't know. Is the vendor hall the best place to have a, well, the, a table the, where the, we can we live were... broadcast as the show's going on? Or where do you think is the best place for that? Um, we had a little media suite, but nobody was really streaming live. Yeah. They didn't really have anything for that. There were two floors of gaming tables and you have to have those booked out in advance. Yeah. They like, what are you running? You know, let me, you know, they, they actually vet you pretty hard. Yeah. They want to know, you know, they want to make sure you're not running, you know, some, that said, there were some pretty cheesy looking tables there. Yeah. There were some really bad tables there. So I don't know how hard they look at it, but I don't know. It's like, are you a member? Are you not a member? <sighs> you know, honestly, I think the HGMS or whatever they call it, uh-huh. take, themselves, take themselves a little too seriously to be perfectly honest. But, um, then underneath that, there was a big, like, I can't remember the name of the hall. There's a huge hall, and that was divided right down the middle. On one side was the vendor hall, where they just had people, you know, playing, uh, sorry, selling stuff. That shuts down firm at 6, uh-huh. and you can't walk in there. We had press passes. They wouldn't let us in there, and we wanted to go in there to shoot a segment. They, like, escorted us in because, you know, people have their merchandise. There. Yeah, of course. They put, they, they put a blanket over it, but there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stuff in there. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but then, like, on the other side of, like, this little divide is, like, the tournament hall. That might be our best bet. There were tons of tables there that nobody was using. Okay. Um, there were some tables that every – it's, like, very simple, like, those old government GP, you know, particle board tables. But yeah. there's, like, 50 of them in there or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, that seemed a lot less formal um, as far as, you know, space. And there were some very, very uh, – I don't want to say low-key, but very ca- – <laughs> The guys were really into it, so it wasn't like a casual game, but not everything was on a huge, you know, 28 millimeter, you know, table. It took some guy a year to build or whatever. It took him three vans to carry it here. It was, you know, it's a very simple setup kind of stuff. Um, I know they do look very hard at, uh, it is the HGM, historical, uh, HMGS, Historical Miniature Gaming Society. Uh-huh. So we'd have to probably uh, ask about any kind of if we wanted to feature like a hex encounter game or whatever. But I know they're mostly into miniatures, right? So we have yeah. to figure out a way to make it a miniature game. Okay. Well, I mean, if we just had a member meetup, you know, we we could do that after hours somewhere. It doesn't have to be yeah. in that hall. We'll figure it out. I promise. I know we can. Uh, we Dennis have plenty of time. The only thing I would think, if you wanted a table, uh-huh. we should probably reach out to somebody soon. Other than that, yeah, we got like, what, 10 more months or something? You know, to, to work on that part. Well, don't you worry. I'm going to write an email right now as we speak to my buddy. I'm going to reach out to Chris, and uh, we'll get us squared away right now. Um, Dennis is in full agreement of a meetup. He thinks that would be extremely cool. So uh, we will definitely... Are these comments on YouTube? Because I'm not seeing them on YouTube. Uh, yes, they are. Uh, okay. I apologize if I'm not responding to anybody. I do not see the comments. Are you looking at the most recent live? Remember, we had a breakdown, so you have to go back in and look for the live one and find it. Yeah. Every okay. time I log into it, it says did you, did stream you starts me? at 4:35. Okay. And I see no. You don't see my comment on there? Hello, Dennis, and all that good stuff. I, I, I see no comments. I see the chat window, but no comments. Weird. 
That's interesting. No worries. Okay. Um, if somebody says something, let me know, and I'll, I'll yeah. So um, I'll reach out to the guys over there about that, and um, I'm trying to see if I have it up easily enough. I don't, but I'll find it. I'll reach out to them, and I'll start the wheels. I'll start greasing the wheels and see what we can come up with on that. Uh, because I think, you know, even it, I'm not looking for anything fancy and I don't want a million people there. I, I would just like a small group of dedicated gamers that we can sit down and play some Valorant victory. Maybe, you know, bring out the, uh, mini table for some specter or something, you know, or ultra combat, um, you know, bring out the ultra combat modern. Um, cause I know Chris is part of that, you know, from, um, the Phalanx consortium. Yeah. So, um, so they'll have that all full blown by then uh, next year. So you know we could run some couple quick games of that, have some drinks, you know that whole nine yards, and just have a good time. You know some of the best backstager meetups that I participated in were the casual ones. Um, we had the Team Yankee one when we went to. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. You know when we went to what is now the the courthouse, but I can't remember what they call it now, but. Um, I tell you what, I'm not very happy with what it's turned out to be. But we had a great no, group. Nobody, nobody goes there anymore. Yeah, uh, so. Jerry's found a few other spots that we go to. So have more fun at. Uh, but yeah, so I think we could definitely do something like that and get some people out. Hopefully, we get Chris to go, and maybe we can get Ralph to come over from over the pond, and you know, go that. You know, if we get yeah. enough notice, we can start planning. I guess is what it comes down to. Um. So I definitely would like to work on that. That sounds really a great time. Um, speaking of Jerry and all that, did you see, uh, I don't know how much you're following over on OTT. Did you see they're going to have some kind of game day for the Korean bolt action game? Um, I think I saw, like, you know what I got? I got an email about it. Okay. One of those automated emails. Yeah. Like the historical gamer. Yeah, yeah. I saw something in there. I haven't been on the site in a while. We sort of let, uh, Poland kind of, um, of course we, we, we pretty much wrapped up Poland. I hadn't really been on there that much since then, but I'd got, yeah, I saw some, I didn't know if it was like a boot camp or like a tournament or a, yeah, I thought it was a boot camp. I'm like, well, if it's a boot camp, I'm going, you know? Um, but it sounds like it's just a one day event. Um, okay. so it's not like a real boot camp because I know Andy and I, you know, we still are chatting back and forth and we are definitely going to do these painting videos. So, um, you know, we're just trying to find a time that's a good excuse to get over to Ireland to do it. So um, I thought, well, maybe if we're going to be for both action, but, you know, I I don't know. We'll figure it out. But um, I I'd still, you know, I know we talked about doing like the weird war weekend around Halloween. Um, yep. I'm telling you, I can't believe it's already almost October. Time yeah. has just gotten away from me. I, and I honestly don't know what I've been doing um, for the last few months because I'm working on a TV project. Um, for a company, um, for a YouTube ch uh, project for them. And we were supposed to have it up and running by this month. And we're still in the planning stages. You know, th <laughs> things don't happen like they, you know, it's just like I'm getting pulled in a million different directions. But um, I, I definitely want to get some memberships, to, I, you know, gaming going on here. Um, we're just, I know Chris wants to do some ultra combat modern 
Um, and I think that'd be a good one. I know I still want to do stuff with Black Sight Studios for terrain, you know, and I definitely want to get uh, Matt and, um, oh my God, I'm so losing my mind. Um, oh, Steven from uh, Spectre, uh, you know, to get something going on over in Ireland. It's just a matter of coordinating everything. So, um, you know, when you're working two jobs, going to school and everything else, it's just kind of. There's not enough hours in the day. I need 36 hours in a 24-hour day. So it's not easy. I've been there. It's, you know, there. the life of a content creator. No, um, it's not easy. So let's – no, it isn't. So let's uh, – speaking of content, yeah, I got to give you props. Okay. The, the Vietnam series, you knocked it out of the park. Oh, cool. Thank you. Um, I Have you been checking out some of the comments that have been on the YouTube I'm uh, yeah, I've been watching them on YouTube and on, on Tabletop, but I don't see them on Facebook. Okay. So. Um, I tell you what, there were some really nice comments on YouTube. Uh, yep. And I think you've really set a standard for some quality programming when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, you know, people are obviously, you know, we're kind of tongue-in-cheek, but they, um, you know, this should be required viewing in a classroom. I honestly agree with that. You know, and I'm they, not they just were, tooting her own they, they horn. They were being tongue in cheek. They were being serious. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I, you know, not because it's our own programming and stuff, but I, it's really educational. I learn a lot from it. You know, I, I think you need the official title of the Sit Reps official war historian. So. All right, I'll take it. All right. Uh, so Dennis says the Korean thing is a one day and it's limited to ten people. What? Yeah, it's like a mini. It's like a mini camp. Yeah. It's not a boot camp. It's a bit camp. Yeah, a bit camp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so um, well, that's kind of sucky because I could have brought my mash guys. Oh no. Oh well. Um. We'll do something over here. But, you know, talking about Op Center, you have really set the bar on that. And I know it's a ton of work and it puts you under a lot of pressure to, you know, push out that quality programming. And I know you're going to be taking a break for uh, a few months, um, you know, until the next series. I, You know, we talked and just keep continuously churning out just burns you out. And that's not fair because, you know, we're doing this because we love the hobby and we want you to have fun as just as much as, uh, you know, you're creating the content. So yeah, to be perfectly honest, I mean, people who come out with like an, uh, a show like the Op Center, I've, uh-huh. I've clicked around other, you know, like there's a, a bunch of podcasts I watch. There's a bunch of YouTubers I, I follow or whatever. And uh, that's literally their job. Yeah. They, they do this. Um, and that comes with its own pressures. Like they have to get a thousand views in the first five minutes or they're out of gas, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's, you know, 10 hours of work a day, you know, hour of commuting, you know, uh, an op center episode takes a week to do. Um, that's if you know the material yeah. like already, um, there's a little bit of research in there just to make sure I spell people's names right or whatever. But like, if we get into like some of the stuff that's been requested, like I literally have to learn about that. Mm-hmm. Like people were talking about this, grab one out of the thin air. Um, People were talking about uh, Afghanistan, uh, uh, 79 to 89, the Russians in Afghanistan. Oh, okay. Yeah. I could talk about that for one episode, but to do four, first of all, we have to do them in groups of four or five at least. Uh-huh. Because you build a certain amount of stuff for an op center, and that's like a week of work. 
Now, if yeah. you're doing just one episode, okay, now you've got your basics done. Now spend another week making the app center. Well, you're already late. So if you make a whole bunch of stuff up front, like your assets, now you can use those assets through like four or five episodes or whatever. Yeah. So the, uh, doing one-offs sound like, sounds like it would be easier. I assure you it would not. It would actually be 10 times harder to do one-offs. Unless we change the format and it's just like me talking into a mic and maybe showing like five or six slides, which I, I don't know if that dip in quality would, would reflect badly on it. Um, but it, to get back to the original point, if we wanted to do one about, you know, the Soviets in Afghanistan, it would be a lot of, it would be like a good month of research before I felt competent enough to, you know, be the, you know, Sid rep historian or whatever. I mean, right. if, if, if you're going to, you know, even if it's only a, you know playing around kind of a title, if you're going to try to live up to that, you kind of kind of know your shit. Man. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, because um, this goes out to a lot of people, and these the, our audience knows what's up. You know, our audience aren't, aren't, aren't dummies by any stretch of the imagination. And if you try to put together you know crappy content, they're gonna they're gonna call even, you out on it, or even worse, inaccurate content. Even if they're polite enough not to call you out on it, number one. They're going to lose faith in you. And number two, that's just not cool to the community yeah. because, you know, our community is small but fierce. You know, they, they do support us. So we got to make sure that we uh, – if we do something, it's got to be good. I agree. And I think, you know, like I said, you – it's top – it sets the bar for programming for this this group, this podcast, you know, our channel. Um, and I, you know, and I need to start working on my terrain because I, you know, I'm going to start doing a terrain program and I want to make sure it's top quality, to, you know, so we're not shortcutting it. Um, you know, I, I watch yours, the Op Center, your work. And then I look at, um, I don't know how much YouTube stuff you watch, but there's a guy called, uh, I think his name's is it Luke Town? Um, he does Boulder Creek Railway, and, he, and it, it's all about realistic terrain building. I mean, okay. amazing stuff. Um, you know, so it's like I, I don't think I'm going to get to that level right now. But I also have a reputation within the wargaming community, you know, from Mike's work on Beast of War and stuff. So there is oh, yeah. that standard that I still have to meet because I am still associated with them, you know, and I literally have a piece of paper on my wall in my uh, studio, our video studio. It, it says WWLD. What would Lloyd do? You know, <laughs> uh, because anytime I have put out content or done anything that's not up to Lloyd's standard, I get a, I don't get a tongue lashing, but I will get stuff from Lloyd going, that's not good enough. So literally I have something that says WWLD. So, um, you know, Lloyd is a perfectionist and, and rightfully so, you know, he's the quiet one behind the scenes, but he's not actually not the quiet one. He's he's just as goofy as Warren, just in a different way. So, um, you know, we want to maintain high quality standards. So have you started thinking about what you might do down the road for your next series or yeah, there, there's a couple in the pipe? Yeah. Um, but. I don't know if I'm going – I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. I okay. can do War on Terror relatively quickly because I've got miniatures for it uh -huh. built, ready to go. I've got, you know, in 1 to 72, I've got the armies built. What I really want to do, uh, sort of, or one of the other ideas, and this is slightly different from War on Terror, is 1991 Gulf War. Okay. And before I do that, I have to buy some miniatures, build them, paint them, or whatever. So and that's like a month. Before I even start, you what know, scale would it. you do those miniatures? Would you do? Oh, them? I know. Not only do I know the scale, I know the box set. I would go to Battlefronts. 
Oh, okay. Uh, he's the biggest fan of your games, but I love your freaking miniatures. I will, I will, ne- I will defend your miniatures to my dying day. I want to get Ryan's Leathernecks. Okay. For, for Team Yankee, um, they have Humvees. They have LAV 25s. They have the old M60s with the uh, the ERA armor on there. Okay. And uh, never mind that four color NATO uh, Murd crap or whatever. I'm going to do that stuff in the desert. Desert. I'm going to I'm going to build a 1991 Desert War. I'm going to do El Kafji. Okay. Well, Jim, send me a list because you know we do have a little bit of a budget now that we have our official s- sponsor, you know, Black Sight Studios. So we might be able to. Uh, Get that cool. stuff sent yeah. out to you. So, you know, uh, send me a list and we'll see what we can do. Um, so speaking of our sponsor, I'm just going to do a quick plug for them. Uh, make sure you're checking out Black Sight Studios, their pre-colored terrain, MDF. Uh, they have amazing stuff. And they're now doing a lot of their terrain in 10 mil. I think it's 10 mil. Um, now I'm going to sound like a dummy because I swear it's 10 mil. And Dennis will probably correct me here in a second. So... Let me pull them up while we're talking. But, yeah, so check out Black Sight Studio um, and give them some love and let them know you heard about them from us. Um, So, yeah, well, let's definitely look into that for you. So, you know, if that's something you really want to do. Um, uh, Tentatively, yes. Again, I have to to literally – it's it's not even at the planning stage yet. I have to buy the miniatures. I have to get the miniatures shipped to me, and I have to build and paint them. And then you know it's that, that's way down the road. But yeah, uh, it's definitely it's definitely, let's put it in the possibility box. Okay, strong strong possibility box. Um, fifteen mil. They're doing it in fifteen mil. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, ten mil MDFs. I don't know that much about MDF, but MDF has to be a certain width, right? Uh-huh. So ten mil sounded like it was going to be kind of small for for MDF, but. I'm sure they're the experts. Yeah. Um, but as far as op centers go, uh, yeah, those were the immediate ones. Okay. But um, we've had other suggestions, some of them more likely than others. Uh, obviously, if we do War on Terror, we wouldn't do the other – we wouldn't do two Afghanistan episodes. Yeah. Um, so we'd either do either one or the other uh, as far as uh, the Soviets in Afghanistan or the um, – the uh, you know the Americans in Afghanistan slash uh, Iraq war on terror. Uh-huh. Um, Ukraine would be another one. It would bet we definitely be. Uh, I already, I've already got the armies for that. I got the armies. I got the terrain. Um, it just be whether or not my my research for that one went up to 2015 and then I kind of got out of touch. I'd have to get refreshed with it. Uh huh. Um, like as far as like you know how how much that war is even still going on. I mean, I know it's in the news very much right now, um, sadly, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let's not start down that. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, yeah. So it's just, it's stuff that would be uh, number one. I'm, I'm fairly knowledgeable on already. And number two, uh, I, I have like some miniatures for because I just don't want to go to Wikipedia and put up a bunch of images that oh, people sure. have already seen. Yeah. And th- then number three, um, I got to be a little, slightly careful. Modern war is always going to be a little bit of a minefield. You gotta it be a little is. Careful. It is. Um, we've had suggestions of, well, not many suggestions, but like ideas thrown around like about the Rhodesian Bush War. And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it, that makes me a little nervous. It's a touchy subject. I mean, there was a lot, you know, there's a lot of racial. I mean, think about it. It truly was a racial war, 
in a lot of aspects, yeah. you know, um, ethnic cleansing, you know, there's, you know, accusations oh, yeah. of that. I, and, I, I have the right vehicles I could do the Balkans war in the 1990s. That yeah. would be a scary one. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if you guys out there, you know, whether you're listening to us live or when this goes out as a re recording, uh, if you have ideas, you know, post them in the comments. Let us know what you think. Um, I, phew, there, there's a lot there. I mean, Ukraine's a good one. You know, outside of Rhodesia, there's a lot of activity going on in Africa. You know, oh, Africa's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. literally still a hotbed of conflict, um, you know. So, I mean, there's just so much you could do. I don't know. So, yeah, I definitely think, you know, whatever then, you whatever then, you come up with is going to be awesome. Let's just put it that way. Once This might be way down the road, um, but maybe like some sort of hypothetical. Maybe like find a way to get the community more engaged in one. Ooh, yeah. Uh, as in, okay, we're going to do an op center, but this op center is going to be a – like everyone talks about Harold Coyle and uh, Team Yankee. Uh-huh. Which is sort of a great book, which is fine because it's good reading. Up. If you take it, it for what it is a story, it's good reading. If you take out the it's good reading. If you take out the historical, you got to remember he was he was an armor officer. Um, but I know for you, you you need that historical accuracy. You need the, the real to an average Joe. Even I re enjoy reading that book. I just read it again not too long ago. Yeah. Um, you know, because one, I'm not a, a an armor person at all, um, so I really don't know much about armor. So, you know, you could tell me they had a kitchen in the freaking thing, and I wouldn't believe that. I'm not that stupid. But um, the tank turret, he's perfect. He's absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was a he was a major in armor. What am I yeah. gonna do? You know, wag my finger at him? You know? Yeah. Well, I did four years in supply. I could tell you what the inside of a Marine Corps warehouse looks like. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> It's again. This isn't a bad thing about him, but as far as a possible like thing, uh -huh. we don't even do this on our weekend games. Is Harold Coyle got started with Team Yankee, and he was so like new to you know writing novels or whatever. Yeah, he just straight out. I don't want to say he stole because he fully admitted it, but he borrowed the setting from Sir John Hackett, and Sir John Hackett wrote that book a full ten to twelve years before. Was that Chieftain? That is Third World War in Europe, 1985. Oh, okay. I've got a copy. I'm looking at a copy of it right now. Okay. That is my favorite kind of uh, historical fiction. Uh-huh. It's the World War Z model. You ever read World War Z by Mike Brooks? I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever read it. No. Okay. Um, it's a obviously a make-believe book, um, but it's written as if it was history. So this book comes out, quote unquote, in the in the early 2000s, talking about the Great War. This is one of the first histories written of the war that took place in 1985, oh, and it's okay. written as a history. It's okay. written in that format. There's one about if the Allies lost in Normandy. There's one about if the um, Confederates won in um, won at Gettysburg. It's these are historical books about battles that never took place. It's true alternate history, and it's presented as such. It's written in that tone. Yeah. Uh, with that level of detail. So that's the book that Sir John Hackett wrote. This was a former, you know, North Hag commander, you know, uh, or I'm sorry, not even that. He was commander of all NATO ground forces or something. He was like the top guy in the late 70s. So there is no authority higher than him. But he's writing what was for him 10 years in the future. Uh -huh. And so he made some guesses, the most educated guesses possible on the planet, but they were still guesses. 
Harold Coyle grabbed that and used that wholesale as his larger setting in which he put his small tank company, Team Yankee, story in. So he, he's, he's his own writer, obviously, when he's doing his tank tour and stuff, how that team works, how that battalion works. You know, he's, he's friends with the S3, but he hates the S2 and, you know, that whole thing. I've, I've seen that stuff firsthand. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's all him. But as far as like what's going on in the greater, you know, not to spoil how the book turns out, but what's going on in the whole world or whatever, that's all another writer. Um, now, that's Harold Coyle's first book. Then he writes two more novels. He's still running novels now. But his next two big novels are actually kind of my favorites, are the ones that come after Team Yankee. That's Bright Star and Sword Point. And that's theoretical U.S. versus Soviets. Let's throw down. This, all the gloves are off. We're going to town for real. A Bright Star is based on the Bright Star exercises we still hold with Egypt um, every year. Egypt is one of the biggest military powers in Africa. Mm. So you have a huge war going on between Libya and Egypt, two enemies that absolutely do not get along. Um, of course, Libya was still like a full country back in those days. Libya backed up by the Soviets, uh, Egypt by the United States. And so now you have a, you know, Soviet and uh, American full-scale Team Yankee-style tank battles over some of the same battlefields that the Desert Rats used to fight over back along the Libyan-Egyptian border. And then Sword Point is the same thing in Iran. Soviets invade Iran, the Americans counter-invade. They're basically, it's the Gulf War before the Gulf War happened, but it takes place in Iran instead of Iraq, and the Soviets are involved. Um, it's theoretical. It's the same. It's like Team Yankee in the desert is what it really is. And I also think that's where a lot of where Battlefront got its ideas for oil war. Because, huh. again, it's Harold Coyle. It's Team Yankee, but it's in the desert. Yeah. And it's all completely theoretical. It's all, you know. So something like that, where we have, like, a big campaign somewhere besides Team Yankee, because we don't want to step on, you know, anyone else's, you know, stuff. A big uh, okay. I know Op Center is mostly historical, but we could grab something in the modern era, have it be theoretical. That way, the players can influence the outcome. We're not slaves to the historical outcome. Right. Yeah. And uh, you know, who knows where, where that could lead? I don't know how. I don't know how the logistics of that could work, but I, I get the feeling that sooner or later, people are going to get tired of hearing me blather on about history and being lectured at so how about i don't lecture people anymore how about you guys get involved and we do some sort of campaign driven op center sometime in early 2020 that sounds awesome that i have no idea awesome. how that's going to work but it sounds good yeah so i'm sticking with it for now <laughs> yeah no that sounds good um i appreciate that you know that sounds really good and uh you know, we're coming up on to the end of our program, but I wanted to talk about one other thing that's not modern related. Um, and that was you and I still, and I know when you have the time to do this, Jim, I know you got a busy mm -hmm. schedule. I would definitely like to still get a game in of Operation Market Garden. You oh, know, that wouldn't and, be that big a deal. So I oh. think we can, you know, it's the 75th anniversary. It just, what, what's today? The 26th. Yeah. Uh, so it just ended 75 years ago. Yep. Um, so I think I would still like to do it. What do you think? Nine Megan or Arnhem? Uh, well, those are your two choices. Do you like tanks or do you like uh, infantry? I, 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 I'm, no. I mean, obviously I'm a member of the 82nd. So nine Megan, there you go. You know, but I do totally respect the British Paris and how they held out in Arnhem. 
Uh, I would kind of stick to my original suggestions, and we don't have to do both. We would pick one or the other. Uh-huh. If we wanted to do Arnhem, we totally do Valor and Victory. If we wanted to do Nijmegen, we do that in Panzer Leader. In fact, that scenario over the Vol River uh-huh. has been designed. Somebody out there really? has it. Yeah. Well, if yeah. You, if that's something you're the, interested in the, doing, the, the, I the am. The original, the original 20, uh, 20s, um scenarios of Panzer Leader in the box – 1974. I think four of them are market garden. Are they really? And I don't, yeah. Um, well, you don't have that many battles to pick from. Uh, it's Normandy, market garden, and then bulge, and you're done. Uh-huh. Um, I, later on, people went back and they did, um, you know, the, the Champagne Country, uh, the, the Arrow battles. You know, there's a few other things. Operation Varsity at the very end um, for Paraleader and things like that. Uh, I think it was like 17th. I can't even remember the division's name. But um, yeah, the last big airborne operation of uh, World War II. Um, but yeah, there's definitely possibilities. But Arnhem is mostly an infantry battle in close quarters. I think the Germans brought in some tanks at the end. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, of course, Nijmegen has mostly infantry, but also like the British, uh, I think the Irish Guards were up there uh, with tanks trying to support um, 82nd Airborne. I know they did reach them. Um, it's whether or not they crossed the Vol River and actually, you know, that, that's where things got, uh, things got very dicey. And they didn't push through Nijmegen or all the way through it or something like that. And hence they never actually reached, uh, obviously I'd have to brush up on it a little bit, but they never actually reached Arnhem because of what, you know, they, they got hung up right around that river. Yeah. Excellent. So yeah, if you're up for it, I'm definitely up for a game of that. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we to pay respect to what happened many, many, this many. This weekend is a little tight. I have to Well, no, no, I, I don't. Saturday. I'm not putting the okay. pressure. It's Thursday, for God's sake. I'm not expecting oh. you to do something for this weekend. Uh, That's well, crazy. Yeah, I remember who you're talking to. I know. Uh, but uh, I do have to work Saturday a little bit for end of quarter. But next weekend, actually this weekend, it's still technically open for Sunday. And next weekend is wide open. So Well, you tell me what works for your schedule, and I will be there. Right, and I'll cool. bring a few friends All right, sounds on, like a on YouTube land and Facebook there and you such. Go. So awesome. you want to do it next Sunday? Would that give you enough time to? Yeah, certainly. All right, let's plan for next Sunday. Do, uh, next Sunday, um, if infantry is, is if yeah, uh, let's let's go with Valor and Victory since uh, you did the uh, the Vietnam game. Yep. And so you're, you're more refreshed on those rules. And then would you want to do 82nd Airborne or would you want to do uh, British Paris? How about you surprise me? Okay. Let's go in with the big surprise. Like we're, you know, jumping into combat. I'd say it was a night jump, but it really wasn't. It was a day jump by the time they got done screwing everything up. So, um, yeah, surprise me. I will handle it either way. All right, cool. We had pretty good success with our British Paris last week. Uh, I'll be in the Falklands, but uh, yeah. They're paratroopers. You're always going to have success. Well, okay. I I say that as we're talking about Arnhem. So, (laughs) (laughs) but you know what? It wasn't the Paris fault. It's the exception that proves the rule, right? It it wasn't truly the Paris fault. Those guys held out to, they could no longer hold. I mean, they, they literally held, you know, follow the thing, hold until relieved. And they were so close to getting to relieved. They just had nothing else to fight with. You know, they were down to fighting with entrenching tools and whatever else they could find. So, um, you know, those guys can hold their heads high. They did uh, an amazing job. So, all right. 
So we'll look forward to that to next Sunday. Um, so we'll put out some details when we know time and everything. And uh, so into the meantime, thanks, Jim, for joining us on another exciting adventure. And uh, thanks to those who joined us on this special live broadcast. So you guys have spoken. So from now on, our broadcasts will be recorded and we'll put them on our regularly scheduled times. That's all good. We still have other stuff that we do live, so that's cool. Um, and if you guys have any ideas for future content, please let us know. And we will get this show out this weekend on recorded. And next week, Tuesday, um, I believe I'm open. I will try and do some more Arma 3 or some other video gaming. And then Thursday, we will look at doing a present arms um, and have some more hobby time. So uh, in the meantime, guys, thanks very much. And again, we want to thank our sponsors, Black Sight Studios, and especially to all our Patreon supporters. You guys rock. And you make all of this possible. So until the next time, we will see you. Take care.